So we do start in Second Peter this morning, and I, we, we don't know exact dates of writings of that sort of thing, but we think that First Peter was written in the early A.D. 60s. Um, Second Peter was probably written several years later. Um, but there's, there's almost connecting trains of thought between the two books. And one of the, one of the first ones that we'll just talk about, um, you'll see in the first couple of verses, but just to kind of bring us up to speed from the last book, from First Peter, he closed his first letter with a couple of major encouragements. So if you're in Second Peter, you can just kind of glance back to the end of chapter five of First Peter and see some of these things. He says, everybody in the church, you're just supposed to, and you guys give me some feedback here. We are all supposed to clothe ourselves with what? Say it loud. Starts with an H. Humility. Clothe your, all of you. So elders in the church, church members. Um, you could even take it back further in the letter and talk about employees, employers, uh, government officials, husbands and wives. All of you. If you belong to Christ, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. That's big. That's big. And then in your humility, he closed out that last book by saying, resist the enemy with everything that you have. That was the title of last week's sermon was resistance isn't futile. Like it is, a, it is right and good. True Christians resist the enemy. That's what we do. We don't give in. We don't think it's right. We don't, you know, fall prey to his roaring and his cunning plan. We resist. We fight back. And every church member, regardless of of giftedness, regardless of position, every one of us is called to lift each other up and count one another as more significant than ourselves. And we do this in humility and we do this by resisting the enemy together. And Jesus modeled this. You saw this just in his own life. Paul kind of takes us back to it in Philippians chapter 2 when it talks about Jesus coming from heaven in the form of a servant, even death on a cross, that sort of a thing. Every step of the way, the Son did what the Father instructed him to do. And every step of the way, he did it to serve those and to save those whom the Father had given him. And Peter says that all of that group of people, every one of you, those who are true born-again Christians, they cannot be devoured by the enemy. They cannot be overwhelmed by Satan because they resist him. Because they fight back and because their faith is placed not in their own power, but in the truth of their salvation in Jesus Christ alone. That's how we resist. Christians continue battling sin and Satan because we bear the image of the king. Remember I told the story about the king's ring? Because we have the ring of the king we belong to him and we continue to resist. And then at the end of chapter 5, verse 10, it says that God is going to do some incredible things for believers. Restore them, confirm them, strengthen them, and establish them. And so then from that, after a few of his greetings, we go right into Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is just, we're going to read these, and this is, these are the only verses we're going to talk about today. And you're going to read through these. You're going to be like, how are we going to talk about these for like 20 minutes? Uh, but we will. And I'll show you why. Read these with me. Second Peter chapter 1, 1 and 2. Simeon Peter, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours 
by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Would you pray with me again? Lord, we come to you in prayer again and now because uh, we have to. Because our, our thinking and our knowledge is insufficient for these things. And so we ask, we, we beg, we plead with you, Lord, to, to help us see and know you better as a result of these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So kids, to answer the question that you need to answer, it, it comes right off the bat. Like just a couple of words in. Simon Peter is identifying himself. And then he uses a couple of phrases. He says, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So let's take those in order. He calls himself a servant. So the word servant and apostle were kind of normal to us. We've heard them at least in church before. But what does he mean by servant? In Greek, this is this is the word doulos, and it literally means a slave. It means a bond servant. It means usually a purchased slave. Now occasionally there were some who, who entered into that contract willingly. Um, but usually this term in particular refers to one who has been purchased, as Jason prayed, off the, off the block, bought for service. Now, in a, in a culture in, in Peter's time when those kinds of levels existed, this, was, this kind of slave, doulos, was pretty much at the bottom. They were the ones who, especially in that time, you know, they wore sandals. It was hot. They didn't have... A lot of very cleanly modes of transportation. And so when you would go into a home, a lot of times a servant would wash your feet. This is a servant who would do that. They're kind of the low end of the totem pole, if you will. Peter uses this term for himself. And he, and he wears it proudly. He says this first, doesn't he? He leads with this. He's a slave of Jesus, he says. Then he says, well, I'm also an apostle of Jesus Christ. So besides Jesus himself, the Messiah himself, apostle, at least in the church, was one of the most revered positions that you could have in the church. And with the exception of Paul, who didn't see Jesus in the flesh personally, with his exception alone, to be an apostle, you, you had to have walked with Jesus, lived life alongside of him. You heard his teachings. You were there for his explanations, none of the people listed as apostles were ever the same. Every one of them changed right down to their core. I mean, guys are leaving like professions, some not so great like fishing, but some like tax collecting, very wealthy, like they were leaving them behind to go follow Jesus. They were never the same because of following him. And if you go to the end of their lives, you know Almost every one of these guys were, were killed because of their love for Jesus, because of their faith in Christ. Everything we know about Jesus from the New Testament comes from the testimony and writings of these apostles. These guys that were with Jesus, they wrote these things that we now read and study as God's word. So it would be silly for us to say, well, you know, I follow Jesus. But I can't listen to Peter. He was so arrogant and brash, and I just can't, I just can't do it. Or, or Paul and some of his teachings, especially that are called into question now about women in leadership. You know, I'll, I'll follow Jesus and listen to what he says, but I can't listen to that chauvinist Paul. I can't do it. There are people who say that. There are people who think that way. 
The Pharisees tried this with Jesus. You remember, they claimed to believe in God, but they refused to follow him. In Luke chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says back to them, Hey, he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, he also says, in talking to the disciples, he says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So you can see the parallel that Jesus is drawing here in authority on what their words and what their teaching was saying. So these guys would be preaching Jesus' message with his authority, and people should receive them and their message as if it's coming from Jesus. So here's the first note in your blanks. It's, it's just simply this. You can't have Jesus while rejecting the ones who Jesus appointed to speak in his name. You can't say, well, I'll listen to Jesus, but I can't listen to Paul. Or I'll put Jesus' words up here, but I can't. I've I got to put Peter's words or James's words down here because they weren't Jesus. So they, they come in his authority as apostles of Christ. And that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, I'm a servant. I'm a slave of Jesus. But I'm also an apostle. So the highest authority in the early church apart from Jesus was that position. And, I, and here's the, that theme that's carried over from 1 Peter to 2 Peter. Right at the very start, with just within the first three or four words of this letter, Peter is practicing what he preached in humility. He is a slave purchased off the auction block by Jesus. He doesn't come flaunting his badge of apostleship or all the things that he saw Jesus do, or even the things that he assisted in Jesus' name to do. He came saying, I'm a slave of Christ. That's what you need to know about me first. He's carrying over that idea of humility. R.C. Sproul says he's simultaneously the highest and the lowest in Christian society. Christian, you are God's child by God's calling, by God's redemption. And that's something that you should rejoice and celebrate in. But Paul says you're not your own. Going back to that slave analogy, he says you were bought with a price. He says that twice in 1 Corinthians. He says you belong to Jesus now. You're a slave of Christ. And the truth is, and you maybe have heard it said this way before, everybody serves something. Everybody worships something. Everybody has a master and bows down to something. It could be God, but it might be money. Reputation, power, material goods. We all worship something, but we are not our own in Christ. We were bought by the precious blood of Christ back to God, reunited with him. New life in Christ doesn't come through privilege. It doesn't come through your hard work even. It only comes through losing your life. And that seems so strange you, you tell that to your coworkers and your friends who don't know Jesus, and they're going to look at you funny. To say the only way for you to be free is to be a slave of Christ doesn't make sense in our mortal minds. You have to have the Spirit of God moving in you to understand this. But this is what Jesus said, right? He said, if you actually want to find your life, you have to lose it first. You want real freedom, bind yourself to Jesus. So the question is, have we found, have you found real life in Christ by giving your life away to him? It's the only way you can. 
We talk about freedom this weekend, and we should. But the only way for you to have freedom eternally is in Christ. So Peter continues in the first verse here to explain who he's writing to. So he's kind of talked about himself, servant, apostle. And then he says he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice that there's no specific church body mentioned in these verses. There's no city. There's no town. There's not even a region really mentioned here. Um, if you flip over to chapter 3, verse 1, Peter does say, he says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, which is a term of endearment. So we think this is, in fact, the same Peter. This is, in fact, written to the same group of believers, probably group of Christians, the Christians in and around Rome. Okay? So... Peter may not be specifying the mailing address of the recipients that he's writing to, but notice what he is extremely specific about. These people have obtained faith. These are ones have obtained faith. And notice that he's specific about how they attained faith. These Christians had attained an, a faith of equal standing with ours. How? Look at the text with me. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So where did their faith start? Did it start in their hearts? Did it start in their minds? Did it start in their choice to believe? Did it start in their continued obedience? Or does it happen in their continued obedience? None of these things. Peter is, is saying, he's teaching us that saving faith is not the result of a human decision. It is a divine gift of God. It's a gift by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Peter says, by that and only that. So it may seem like you are the ones who one who decided to put your faith in Christ when you were saved. But please understand that it actually all started not with you and your decision, but it actually all started with God. It started with the spirit. Now, it's possible that you think I'm splitting hairs here. You know, what does it really matter what all happened in all of this? It all happens so quickly. And it's true. It does. But it's, under, it's, it's important because of how we understand salvation and where salvation comes from. Because if it's totally my choice, if the offer is there and it's just my choice whether to believe it or receive it or not, how quickly will I stop believing it? How long will it take for me to not believe anymore? Guys, our society is full of people who have once claimed to believe but no longer do. And with as much humility and compassion as I can, I would just have to conclude that those people never truly believed as a result of God's work in the first place. It was just their own work. It was just their own effort. That's not saving faith. Paul reminds us in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 that God doesn't wait until we clean up our act to send Christ. He doesn't wait for us to improve me a little bit. I just need to work on me for a while, and then God will like me. That's not what it says at all, right in the middle of our sin. Even, Paul says, even while we were still dead in it, Christ died. God's mercy came. For us. 
While we were still following the enemy, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. Even while we were living for the lusts of our flesh, in the middle of all that, God comes in love and mercy and raises us up with Christ. By grace you have been saved, he says. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, he says in verse 8 and 9. He says, it is the gift of God. So that's why we call it a gift of God. Not a result of works, he says, so that no one may boast. So God and God alone gives the gift that none of us deserve, but every one of us need. It's from God. Now, I appreciate the King James Version. If you've got a King James Bible, verse 1 looks a little bit different. And it includes the word precious faith. And I think it's right to you. I think there's Greek background for this. Includes the words precious faith. The faith that's precious to the Jews, especially in that time, is the same faith that's precious to the Gentiles who experience it because of Christ. It's precious to all of them. The same standing, the same faith. Now, when we use the word precious, what do we usually use it for? And don't tell me the ring in Lord of the Rings. Okay. John, that's where your mind went. When we use the word precious, we think, yeah, children, little babies, precious children. Then they grow up. What would you say? Okay. Memories that are precious to us. Any ladies have any stones on their rings, on their fingers? Those are called precious stones. See, we're not driving around on a parking lot of diamonds. All those rocks out there are not precious. I doubt there's a precious one in there. But the ones that we give to those that we love, husbands to wives specifically, those are precious stones. They're way more valuable than the stuff on our gravel roads. And so it it makes us ask this question. If this faith is precious, as Peter says, is it that way to me? Ask that question in your own heart. Is Is it that way for you? Is there anything that you own, even our memories, is there anything that we have that's more precious than the faith that connects us to Christ and bestows on us his entire inheritance? Is there anything more precious than that? Jesus told a few parables about this topic, didn't he? You remember the pearl of great price? The coin that was lost. These people were willing to turn their lives upside down for something that they knew was more valuable than anything else they'd ever set their eyes on. They'd ever heard about. They sold everything. He guy sold everything he had just to go and acquire land to, to get the prize. Jesus is teaching about the gift that he gives. Do we value the gift of God in our own lives like that? Or do we turn our lives upside down for sports or hobbies or me time? That'll have to wait because I need some me time. And so oftentimes when we get into that habit it can become a bad habit and sometimes we're saying church will have to wait the body of christ my bible reading and prayer time will have to wait because there's something more precious to me in my life we're in danger 
we need to resist the lies of the enemy that would say that that's true. Is God's gift more valuable than anything else to us? More precious than anything we could set our eyes on or lay our hands on? I pray that God would remind us of the incredible gift of faith in Christ Jesus that he has given. And he says, Peter says, faith of equal standing. So precious faith of equal standing. The faith of the apostles. Those in the early church. Those who are in Christ still today. Guys, it's the same faith. It, we put our faith in the same thing. If God is the one who has awakened your heart to the gospel, you can be assured that it's the same effectual faith that saved every apostle who knew Jesus personally and every other Christian throughout the course of the world. To all of those folks, Peter says in verse 2 now, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That kind of, this kind of greeting or even goodbye is sort of common in our culture, but it's really deeply rooted in Jewish culture. Okay, so this kind of blessing, this may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This this really probably comes out of an understanding of the Old Testament. Numbers chapter six, verse 24 and following was kind of that blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you. There's a song that's on the radio now. Kind of put that to music. It's unique in Peter's writing here, though, that he says that these things, he prays that they would be multiplied to you, he says. Grace here, this word means an act of grace or a state of graciousness. It could mean joy, pleasure, favor even. So Peter's saying, may God's means of grace be ever increasing to you. May they abound. May they, may they increase and be increasing as you go. May they multiply. Not only grace, but he says peace. Peace means quietness, stillness. It means rest. So think about these things. Peter says grace and peace or joy and peace be multiplied to you. Do you think that this would be an appropriate greeting for people today? Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Think about some of the major things that we struggle with. We don't normally have joy. Instead, we have fear, distress, worry. We don't all often have peace. We have busyness, restlessness, crammed schedules, feeling like there's no time for rest and peace. So maybe we should say, hey, may you have the joy of God's favor and rest in your soul. May it ever be increasing in your life. How has this happened in the life of a Christian? Here we go. How are grace and peace multiplied in the life of a Christian? The end of verse 2. In the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Through, your version might say, through the knowledge of God and Jesus. Because of that knowledge. That's how grace and peace are multiplied in our hearts. And this makes sense, I think. Because the better that you know God through Jesus, who Hebrews chapter 1 says is the exact imprint of God, the better you know God through Jesus, the more joy and peace 
and the more pleasure and rest you have. There's a direct relationship between our knowledge of God and how joyful we are. And there's a direct relationship between our knowledge of God and how peaceful we are. Think about people in your life who you would say, and that, that person is rested in Christ. Or that person is full of joy in the Lord. It's because of their relationship with Jesus that that comes. It's because of their understanding of who God is through Christ that they can be rested, that they can have joy. I mentioned the term means of grace earlier, and some of these means of grace that God gives to his people are just regular, simple things. They ought to be familiar with all of us. His word, the Bible, is the means of grace to you. His people, his church, the gift of prayer, worship, communion. These things, just to name a few, these are some of the graces of God, the means of grace now here's kind of another fun thought. Peter prays that grace and peace will be multiplied to God's people through the knowledge of God and of Jesus. But where does that knowledge come from? Think about it. All knowledge of God comes from who? God. Everything you know about God came from God to begin with. Now, if Ephesians 2 is true... And we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. Without God's saving grace through Christ, there's no reason in the world that we deserve to be given any knowledge of God at all to start with. He doesn't owe his creatures, his creation, anything, much less self-revelation. Sproul said it this way, the fact that God has not kept us in the dark but has been pleased to manifest his being clearly through the things that are made is grace. The fact that you're not kept in the dark wondering, is there a God? If there is a God, does he care about me? We know answers, definitive answers from his word to those questions. Yes, there is a God. Yes, he cares for you. And he's proved it on the cross. And he's given us knowledge of himself through general revelation of looking out in the world. Romans 1, Psalm 119 tells us you can just look out at creation and see the things that he's made and know that God exists. That's general revelation, but he's given us even more specific, special revelation in his word, in Christ, in his spirit. God is not silent, brothers and sisters. He speaks loudly. The question, though, is, are we listening? Are we hearing? Or maybe to rephrase it in kind of Peter's comments, do we have the knowledge of God? Do we see it? Do we hear it? Do we understand it? Are we looking for it? In the next verses that we'll start into next week, Peter's going to help us see that God's revealed power has not only taught us about himself and who he is, but it's also, as the theme for the first chapter of Second Peter says, it's also granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I read through Second Peter several times this week, and that idea of knowledge of God is hit on several times. More than coincidence, there's a purpose in it. And so we need to understand 
What is Peter talking about when he's talking about the knowledge of God? And he's talking about knowing Jesus Christ, who has obtained this gift for us, who is this gift for us. So next week we'll look at the precious promises of God. Today we're talking about the faith, precious faith that God gives. Next week, the promises of God, being partakers of the divine nature. We'll also look at what keeps Christians from being ineffective and infruitful in the knowledge of God. Have you ever asked those kinds of questions or maybe made those kinds of statements like, I want to be effective. If I'm going all in with Jesus, I want to be effective. Peter helps us understand that better. And we'll talk more about that next week. Salvation, that gift of God, doesn't just come, though, from thinking really intently about these things. It doesn't come from studying fervently or certainly repeating the right phrases. These are just human works that the Bible would title that, works. Salvation comes, brothers and sisters, as a free gift of God, given to every person who believes. Now, thinking deeply and studying fervently are good things that Christians, after they've been saved, will want to do. We should think deeply. We should study fervently. But those things don't earn salvation. The theme of 2 Peter, as we'll see, is that Peter wants his readers to be convinced of the truth. Truth that comes from reputable and genuine sources, not so-called truth that comes from the doctrines and traditions of men. And so he's going to call out false teachers And he's going to tell Christians to have no part of them. Scripture is clear. The only way to eternal life is by setting your faith 100% in Jesus. A faith that in and of itself is a gift of God to begin with. God grants faith through the Spirit. And we believe. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God's already done the work. Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. All we do is receive in faith the salvation that God offers. That precious faith is yours because of Christ. It's a gift of God so that no one would boast. And then the joy and the peace of God, the grace and peace of God will be multiplied to you As you increase in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, as you increase in your knowledge of God through Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, that's our challenge today. Are we increasing in that knowledge? Do we know God to begin with? May he move in our hearts by his spirit, through his word to change us, because it's only his doing that changes our hearts. It's not your effort. It's his word. It's his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this reminder. I am. Lord, these are simple, basic truths that we might think, to some degree, we can move beyond. Because I know that. And there are certainly some things that we need to continue understanding and to move beyond. But Lord, we never need to move beyond the truth that salvation comes as a gift from you. Faith itself is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Praise the Lord. And so, Lord, we are assured from Peter, from your spirit, that grace and peace, that rest and joy will be multiplied to all those.
who are found in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray if there are any who are listening who are not found in Christ, who have not put their faith in you, who have maybe made a profession, but it wasn't of the Spirit, it was just of their own doing, Lord, I I pray that you would move in hearts and that the Spirit would move. Not my words, not the music that's played, but the Spirit would move and convince of the need and grant faith and repentance and that people might be saved. Lord, this is a gift of yours, and we thank you for it. It's all because of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.